Hey everybody, thanks for joining us back here on Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we've been doing, reviewing, spending time on, and talking about, and a whole lot more over on blisterreview.com. Okay, so my guest this week is Adam Sklar, the founder and proprietor of Sklar Bikes, and this is a pretty interesting conversation because a lot of you are probably familiar with Adam's business as a custom frame builder, but he has recently decided to put that side of the enterprise on hold and move to offering production bikes that he's having built overseas. And well, that is not the most common move, especially for someone who had a thriving custom bike business and had won the North American Handmade Bike Show's Best Mountain Bike Award a few years back and a whole bunch more, Adam presents some really just interesting thoughts on why he wanted to change the direction of the business, why he wasn't feeling the most fulfilled by making high-end custom frames, and how he feels like he can just better serve his customers and bikes out into the world in the way that he wants to by making this pivot to offering production bikes instead so it's a pretty interesting one and adam does a really commendable job of being just open and sharing his thoughts and feelings on the whole situation and i enjoyed it a whole lot and i think you will too but before we get into it, I would like to encourage you to check out our Blister Plus membership, which in addition to all of the standard Blister member benefits, including being able to drop us an email and get a recommendation on your next bike purchase, your new set of wheels that you're looking at, or maybe just your suspension setup, something like that, uh, also gets you injury insurance if you get yourself hurt biking, skiing, running, climbing, and a whole other list of outdoor activities that we've got included in the notes on the site. And we think this is really important, both because it's got the potential to save you a whole lot of money in the event of a serious injury, even if you do have pretty good health insurance, but also because it means that it's very easy and free for you to go get a minor injury looked at to make sure that it's not something more serious. So check it out. There's a link in the show notes and get yourself covered. So with that, let's get right to my conversation with Adam Sklar. Well, Adam, great to sit down and chat. How are you doing today? And where are you today? Good. Uh, yeah. So today I'm actually in Berkeley, California, where I just moved to. Oh, right on. Okay. I didn't realize that you had uh, made that move. So, well, bunch to talk about here and kind of we'll, I suppose, get to that as we move to through the history of Sklar. But tell us where Sklar Bikes got started and kind of just how you entered the world of making bike frames. Totally. Yeah. So Sklar today... Uh is we're in our 10th year right now, which is pretty crazy. So basically how it started was I, when I was 18, I started building bikes in my garage just because I thought it'd be cool. And I didn't really know anything about fabrication or bike design. Um, but I was just, um, yeah, taken 
they can buy it. And I thought it'd be really fun to do. So I felt maybe, you know, a few bikes for myself and then some friends wanted one and then their friends were asking for one. Uh, before I knew I sort of had a little business just as a way to keep track of how much money I was spending on building bikes. Um, then I, you know, then I used school for engineering at the time. And so I ended up working in the machine shop in school, building all these tools to make bikes. I found a mentor there who had been a bike builder in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and then, yeah, I thought that school, I dropped myself together and I, I sort of officially started the business. Um, selling custom bikes that I was building one at a time for, uh, yeah, for people who would, would approach me and commission a bike. And so that was sort of the last eight years, um, building 30 or 40 bikes a year by myself in a garage, more or less. Uh, and yeah, that was a lot of fun. And then instantly I had an addition to uh, Doing bikes, having bikes made overseas and production runs. Small, still small in the scale of most bike companies, but uh, bigger for for sure. So that's a super short version of Star Bikes. Yeah, so I mean, that's a kind of good condensed version. We'll, we'll go a little deeper on some of the details in a second here, but uh, sort of just want to start at the beginning a little bit. And I mean, you like I said you were sort of in engineering school at the time and just started building bikes on the side as a hobby, someone who's into bikes had some ability to do it. And did you ever at the beginning envision that it was really going to turn into a more full fledged business as it has and a career for you, or was it just really something that you intended to be a hobby initially and things kind of snowballed from there? Yeah. You know, I, especially at the beginning, I really didn't intend for it to be a business. I know I, I talked to anyone who would talk to me who was building bikes and, you know, there's sort of, I don't know, it's a pretty niche scene, but there's a couple hundred people in the U.S. building bikes and I probably talked to all of them and pretty much universally their advice was to not do it for a business. <laughs> and so I I dragged my heels into it for sure. But yeah, recently I've been kind of joking. People don't think I'm joking, but I keep saying like, oh, I accidentally started a bike company and I, I do kind of feel that way. Having gotten that advice to not make it a business and not having really set out with the intention of doing so, what made that change? Kind of where did you decide that, ah, what the hell, I'll give this a go? Or is it something that just sort of happened organically where you were building some bikes for some friends and then friends of friends and then all of a sudden you had started a business without really ever being super deliberate about that being the end goal or how'd that happen? Yeah. I mean, there was a point when I was working a, a engineering job, which I, yes, I ended up getting a degree in mechanical engineering and working at a, a pretty cool design firm. Uh, I met the guy who owned that firm, Racing Cross. And so he was a bike guy. And I think I was spending, I was getting more and more phone calls during work of people trying to order bikes. And there was one day when he took me out to coffee and was like, hey, you should choose either this or that. And uh, I gave myself a month to try out bikes, or I think it was like three months and um, full time. And then six months later, it seemed to still be working. And so that was sort of the point when my livelihood depended on it. I was like, okay, we'll take this seriously. Definitely a big, a big shift towards really doing it then. Right. Okay. And 
how did making that change feel like it uh, changed your relationship with the whole project? Was it that, you know, like you said, you had to start taking it a little bit more seriously in a way because it had become your livelihood rather than a hobby. But did that feel like it really meant there was a big shift in how you looked at building bikes and running it as a business? Or was it just sort of a continuation of the same thing where you were just able to do it more full time and at a bigger scale? Yeah, I think that's a cool question. Um, I mean, as far as how I was designing and building the bikes, I suppose it did have some impact. I mean, I was at this time 23 or 24, so I was pretty young. And I felt like uh, that was a hurdle to overcome. So I, I do think part of my success was feeling like I needed to really prove myself and really go above and beyond and being professional with how I ran the business. So there's definitely, yeah, compensating for my age and like, knowing that in order to, you know, have people feel comfortable buying a bike from me, I would have to do what I thought was a better job than other people who were doing it at the time. So I am thankful for that. I guess in hindsight, it really made me push a little harder, build a more stable business. That's really interesting. And what did that look like for you? I mean, what is what did it mean to, you know, be more professional or how did you sort of, see yourself as being able to differentiate yourself there. Yeah. So with the, with the custom stuff, really it's, it's a huge customer service business really. I think, I think I've been saying, or someone said this to me once, but it was, we, was it, what we deliver is bicycles, but what we sell is customer service. Cause it, those custom bikes would be like six, six weeks, six, eight weeks of emails back and forth, you know, designing the bike. So it's a really intimate process getting to know like what someone's riding style is, where they live, like what kind of goals they have with a bike. So you really get to like, you actually get to know someone pretty well through that process. And, you know, I was, yeah, I put a lot of energy into making sure that was a nice experience. Um, everything from that to, you know, taking really professional photographs of the bikes when they're done and uh, having my own parts for the frames made, uh, designed and made just trying to differentiate the bikes a little more in a time when that wasn't happening so much in the frame building world. Now, a lot of folks are doing it, but when I was doing that, it was pretty rare. And by that, you mean stuff like dropouts and small frame components along those kind of lines? or Totally, yeah. Up? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And would you say that you had anything in particular that you were really specializing in in that time, or was the stuff that you were building kind of all over the place. I I guess that's another part of what I did was sort of trying to was one of the first like like frame builders to sort of create a brand and be consistent in not just, you know, like colors and logo edge and stuff like that, but kind of what I was building. Um, there's definitely been some waves of, you know, popular types of bikes we've ridden. Like I mean early on it was single speed 29ers. Uh, and then we sort of went into the plus bike era and you know that's been a fun part about frame building is when there's sort of a new thing it takes years for bigger companies to develop those products but i can just go into the shop and make one so yep plus bikes that was a little blip and then uh 
Uh, and then like gravel bikes has actually been, you know, it's funny that early on we were building those specifically. Uh, yeah, when they were hard to get. And that was cool. Cool wave to ride. Right. Obviously, gravel has boomed immensely in recent years. But I think you're right that in the early part of that wave, it was kind of smaller custom builders like yourself that were getting that off the ground a bit. Oh, I guess. And yeah, the other thing that's maybe more relevant to you is, yeah, like the super progressive mountain bike stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, and are there any bikes from that period of doing custom work that really stand out to you as having been either a particularly interesting set of parameters that someone wanted or a very unique end use case or just a final product that you were especially proud of for one reason or another? Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of them. I think it's nice. I mean, I think I was proud of every one of them. It was pretty rare. I would build something that didn't feel true to what I was trying to make. I guess that's, I got better at that over the years, kind of saying no to things that didn't align with my design philosophy or what I wanted to do with the brand. But there were, I feel like there are a lot of bikes that, especially in the mountain bike realm, were kind of leading edge of where geometry has gone. And it felt pretty cool to be testing out those ideas and turning them into bikes before other bike companies were. You've kind of described the very lengthy back and forth process of planning out and working with a customer to conceptualize a custom bike. And I have to imagine that it's a pretty tricky balancing act to sort of juggle doing that in to the level of detail that you would want to while just actually having the time to build enough frames to really make it a viable business and support yourself in doing so. And I uh, would be curious to hear you talk about that more, just sort of what you learned worked and didn't work from that and kind of what that uh, what that balance felt like. Totally. That's, um, that is the hard balance to strike in, in the custom business. Um, and trying to balance that for eight years is sort of what's led me to do the production stuff. But yeah, I mean, the way it ended up, the way I would think about it is basically my day-to-day -day is running the business. And then in my free time, I throw a bike together. Uh, and luckily I had a shop that was super built out and I had the skills to make a nice bike really quickly. But I think from the outside, it looks like you're spending all this time building bikes, but really the, the time consuming stuff is the design. So I did a few things. I made some, some bike models that were sort of ready to order. Like you'd pick your size and color and it wasn't a custom bike, but it was still built to order for you. So from a business perspective, I don't have to hold inventory and I can have a design that's sort of my distilled philosophy on like a mountain bike or a gravel bike or a touring bike. And it makes it cheaper since we're not spending all the time on the back and forth and it makes it quicker for the customer to get since, yeah, we're not spending eight weeks designing their bike. 
Um, and so those sort of the, that's the slippery slope I slid on down to, to do the stock bikes. In doing those custom bikes, when you're having that lengthy back and forth with someone, how much, I mean, I'm sure there was a, a pretty big range depending on the customer and what have you, but how much was it that someone was coming to you being like, I would like, you know, I'm so-and-so tall, these proportions, whatever. I want a bike that will do this. Let's talk about the geometry numbers that would result in the handling and ride quality and all, all that that I want, as opposed to someone showing up and being like, I want a bike with about these numbers. Can you build that? And kind of how, what did the process of designing a bike for someone look like in a bit more detail? Typically, most people would come to me and of course, like their their measurements are really important. Um, but typically, we talk more about riding goals, I found was the best way to design a bike. So even to avoid like, I want an aggressive mountain bike and to, to talk more about what they're trying to ride, because I think you can get caught up on an idea in your head a lot that distracts from maybe finding the best solution. Um, I think people are either on one side of the fence, or the other, like there are the super fans who are like, I've been dreaming of a bike with this geometry and I wonder what it'd be like to ride this, 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 and this, um, this head tube angle, this front center. Uh, and those people are fun to work with. Sometimes I have to push back more than I liked because um, it's important to remember I'm a expert in bike geometry and uh, I've tried a bunch of wonky things. Yeah, so those those people who came in with an idea of geometry, it's usually good healthy back and forth. I mean, some people know a lot. Some people have ideas of things they've heard in the media and I've tried them out and I think they're a bad idea. So I got good at saying no to things when I thought they'd be a bad idea. But I, th I think where the custom world is good is when you find someone you can trust, which is nice because you can see you know, you look at someone's body of work and they're building bikes that you were like, oh, that looks fun. And so um, you can trust them to design a nice bike for you and you tell them what you're looking for and you usually end up with a good bike. But if you, I think if customers have too much input, sometimes you can get hung up on one, one detail maybe or trying to do too many things. That's the worst thing to to do with a bike design is trying to do too many things. And by that, you mean designing a bike with too many disparate end uses in mind or? Yeah, like I want a 150 mil travel hardtail that I can also put a rigid fork on to go bike packing. And I want to run 3.8 inch tires, but also 2.4 inch tires. And those are things that people actually ask for in one bike, which I get, but it's just going to be really bad at everything if you try to do that. <laughs> right. So tell us a bit more then about the evolution of the custom business over the years before you started moving into more production stuff. And we'll talk about that evolution in a few here. But as you kind of became more established and had more of a name out there and did it feel like there was a particular segment or category of bikes where you really started to become recognized or known for building X, Y, and Z? And 
your customer base kind of honed in on anything in particular or did it stay pretty varied throughout, I guess? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, my my personal biking background is in mountain bikes. That's how I got into biking. And still my my preferred, I mean, I like all the kinds of bikes, but I ride mountain bikes a lot. And so that early on was was the big thing, single speed 29ers. Then it was at the, the more aggressive hardtail thing. Um, and then, yeah, I went to the North American Handmade Bike Show a handful of times. And I think it was 2017 or 2016. I won this award for best mountain bike, which sort of put me on the map a bit. Um, and so I think, yeah, the mount, mountain bikes have always, it's always really been a split between mountain bikes and gravel. So stuff that goes on dirt is typically the people I would, um, I would serve. And I think one thing I started to notice when I leaned more into gravel bikes was a good mix of like getting road bikers first time on dirt and maybe mountain bikers first time on road, which was something I really liked was, it was a, it was a place where all the kinds of bikers came together and I was converting them into each other. And, uh, I like that. That is cool. Tell us a little more about that, uh, bike that won the award at the handmade bike show. What did you do for that one? Yeah. I mean, it's funny because those awards are a little, uh, NABS doesn't exist anymore. And people are always a little salty about the awards. Um, for example, I think that year I had in my booth, like this really sweet, like 150 travel hardtail. That was my mountain bike. That was really fun. But the one that won is a rigid single speed 29er. And at that show, they were into like, I made everything on it. Like I made the dropouts for the fork and the frame and this like really elaborate fork crown that was brazed in and, uh, you know, had all shiny Paul and White Industries stuff on it. It was a really beautiful bike. Um, but that one was more, I think that award was more directed at the craft of the bike than the design. But that's okay. I still I still won it and um, it brought a lot of attention to the brand. That's actually kind of a good segue into just a little bit about the various materials and production techniques you worked with because, you know, you, you did mix of steel and titanium bikes and well certainly welded a bunch you just mentioned some brazed bits on the fork at least and how did you kind of think about the material selection when you were designing a given bike and talking to a customer about what they wanted and the thinking about you know for a steel bike say welding it versus brazing bits and how did uh you approach all of those kinds of decisions yeah, materials are really fun. It's um, I think when you're getting a bike that's handmade, like really the biggest advantage you're getting is you're almost always getting a bike with the nicest materials because it doesn't... I think most people who are taking the time to make it are going to buy the best materials available. I always do. Um, and especially a domestically made bike that doesn't have to pass testing standards, um, which is still plenty strong, but um, you can get away with a very, very nice riding bike, like a, a metal bike that is so light and responsive and rides really nice. Um, and especially with the custom stuff, 
when you're talking about someone's size and writing style, those are two things that play really big into material selection. So, you know, a bigger writer, or if I had the same writer who was, uh, you know, lived in two different places, like someone lives somewhere super chalky and rocky and someone's riding mostly smooth trails, like they're going to get different, a whole different tube set, which is sort of hard to communicate. Um, but it makes the bike ride differently. And it's cool to be able to tune that in or, you know, two riders in the same spot. One weighs 100 pounds more, like you're going to get um, whole different things. So you could really dial in that ride quality for each rider. And that was always a fun thing to do with the custom stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, I did. So I started off raising bikes just because it's the easiest to learn pretty much. But that's super time consuming. Um, so not really viable as a business. So I started TIG welding steel bikes also because I had the intention to build out of titanium eventually, um, which TIG welding is the only way you can do titanium. Yeah, and then in 2015 or so, I started offering titanium, which is a very cool material. Um, I think it's it gets a lot of hype, and I think it works really well in a lot of applications. And um, I don't think it's necessarily better or worse than steel, but it's a really nice material, and it's, it's pretty fun to work with. A lot of people want it. Was sort of adding titanium to your offering something that you felt like you really wanted to do just because you were interested in it for one reason or another? Or, or was it something that you really felt like the market and your customers were looking for and it felt like something that needed to be in the lineup to be sort of relevant in that custom builder space that you were operating in? Yeah, I mean, both sides of that, for sure. I mean, I always, I mean, a part of, or I guess one story you'll hear a lot in sort of the handmade scene is, you know, I wanted a really nice bike, but I couldn't afford one. And so that's sort of my story. I could never afford a titanium bike, but I had a frame shop. So I figured I might as well figure out how to make a tie frame. Um, and yeah, customers, I think, I think, there's more people who have maybe gone and tried out a carbon bike and found it frustrating um, how creaky and breaky those are, and they want something that's more durable. So though they're more likely to fall back on titanium than steel, I think. Just you know, it doesn't rust. It's stronger. It's more resilient. So it's a it's a great. I think titanium bikes are seeing a lot of people coming, reaching reaching back to metal bikes through that sort of that path. That's interesting. And how was the process of getting up to speed working with titanium, having had this experience, you know, as a builder in steel, but making that addition to the material offerings, how much of a challenge was that? It was a little challenging. I mean, it's titanium is not, it's not as hard as people make it out to work with. Um, there's some more rules to follow when you're working with it. You have to be really careful when you're welding it because it's super susceptible to contamination when you heat it up. Um, so you have to be a lot cleaner. You have to fill the whole frame with gas with argon while you're welding it, which costs more. The material costs like two to three times as much. So if you mess up, mistakes are a lot more expensive. Um, it's harder on finishing tools. Yeah, until... I had 
built a tie frame. I was like, why are these so expensive? And then I built one. And I was like, wow, these should be more expensive because <laughs> it's it's quite it is hard to work with, but it's it's it operationally is not too different than working with steel. To move on then, but you know, I think one of the reasons that I was excited to do this episode is that you've, as we've sort of danced around a little bit, made the somewhat unconventional move as a custom builder to move into production bikes and away from the custom side of the business, at least for the time being, and just want to hear about kind of, well, as you sort of said, you've made a couple steps along the way. You started offering stock bikes that you were still building yourself and then have now continued the production bike side of things with some overseas built frames. But tell us about how that evolution started and what sort of encouraged you to take those steps. Sure. Yeah. So I think one of the big things, as we talked about a bit, was that talking with all these customers, building hundreds of custom bikes over the years. And, you know, that's what I'm doing every morning. I'm waking up and having kind of similar emails with people asking for similar things. And I didn't, I think I've realized more as I've stepped away from that, how useful that was as a designer to get actual feedback from all these people. Um, yeah, I mean, hundreds, even people who didn't buy bikes, like there are probably thousands of people who are like, hey, this is the bike I'm interested in and it doesn't exist and this is what I want. So that that was a big part of it, was seeing a lot of consistent asks in bike design. Um, and then... I guess another part we didn't mention was during that time of doing custom bikes, my my lead time for a custom bike was about two years between 2017 and last year when I took my, when I did my last custom bike. So people were waiting two years for a bike, which personally I would never do. And I am thankful for those customers, but it to me it doesn't seem like a good product if you have to wait two years for it. I just I don't, I don't like that very much. And um, also in order for me to make a living building the custom bikes, they had to be very, very expensive. And that's kind of just the way it is. So between waiting two years and paying $4,000 for a frame, I was like, I don't know, is this what I want to do? Um, yeah, so I sort of started, I had some connections at, a factory in Taiwan and started talking with them and uh, got some samples in and I wasn't totally sure if I was going to do it as a business. I thought it'd be a fun thing to try out. Um, but the idea behind the first one, the super something was basically to make a bike for my friends. And I was like, well, if, if this is a bad business move, all my friends are going to get sweet bikes and we'll move on. But um, yeah, I'm excited to, it feels like a product that does those things for me. It's like, it's way more approachable and it's actually available. You can actually buy it. And for that, I think it's just, it's a better product than the custom bikes that work because those are just unobtainable. I'd be curious to have you just talk a little bit more about, well, you mentioned the super something, but tell us about the bikes that you've decided to move forward with in production, because that's obviously kind of a narrowing of the, scope of things that you're offering by necessity rather than 
being this open-ended custom builder who's building whatever people are coming to you with, or at least that you're choosing to take on out of those projects to need to pare it down to a handful of models that are going to be the stock offerings. So where have you gone with that? Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. Uh, the, so basically the, the way we're going now, um, maybe it's a little self-centered, but basically it covers the type of writing that I like to do, which, you know, I think lends itself to me designing the best bikes I can. But I think something I've been leaning into more the last few years is realizing that I'm not a bike racer. I'm not an endurance athlete person. I'm just like a regular person who likes to ride bikes. And so it feels like that's a great group of people to serve because I think that's most people who ride bikes. So basically we have the, the super something is kind of the gravel bike that, as we talked about, is sort of the result of all these asks that people have given me over the years for a gravel bike. It's um, it's nothing crazier out there, but it's just fun and reliable. It's versatile. Um, and yeah, it's been my, my favorite drop bar bike I've ever had. Um, and then I just announced at this made show a couple of weeks ago, the new hardtail we're going to do, which is called the tall tail. And that's, that sort of evolution of another bike I was doing called the Sweet Spot that's been the built-to-order hardtail I've been doing for four or five years. So it's a, I've actually reeled it in over the years. When it first launched, it was like super long, super slack, and still by industry standards, pretty long, pretty slack. But um, it's, as you know, as I've ridden different iterations of that bike over the years, it's sort of the one I've landed on that's like, it's a nice sweet spot of aggressive, but still nimble and fun. Um, and then the third bike that we'll be doing next year is called the Performance Basket Jammer. And that's sort of my rigid mountain bike, touring bike. That I mean, I ride it all over town. I ride it, take on big bike tours. Um, you can put a hundred little fork on it, and it's a pretty fun kind of cross-country e-bike. But basically, it's like if I could only own three bikes personally, which ones would I have? And those are them. And I, I feel like that's a pretty good guiding way to do it. And there might be more models down the road. But as we kind of move into this new business model, that's that's going to be our starting point. Right on. And I mean, you mentioned having had a bit of a relationship with a builder in Taiwan. Uh, where did that kick off and um, how has it gone moving to building bikes overseas from doing it all yourself prior to that yeah so the i think the the, the trade partner i'm working with reached out to me years ago and they started off uh they were responsible for building all the all the surveys and all cities for qdp for a long time um and yeah they've been amazing to work with uh, they, it's, um, yeah, you know, Tai, Taichung city where their base is a city that builds bicycles and that is what everyone does there. And all the infrastructure is right next to each other. Uh, so it makes it, makes it pretty easy. It's been really fun to have more manufacturing power. Like when I want to get a dropout made for the bikes I make in the U S I'm 
designing it. I'm sending it to a machine shop and it's super expensive to get like 20 of them made. But there, you know, we're casting stuff. So we get to open tooling and it's when you're when you're gonna make a thousand of them, it, it brings the cost down a lot. So it makes it it makes a lot more sense to make all these cool custom parts that go on the frames. Uh, so that's been really fun. The quality has been so good. Like it, I really did the first samples we got. I knew they were going to be good, but I wrote them and I was like, oh, this is like actually super nice. And that's been really, that's been really nice that they're, uh, that they're nice. It's nice. They're nice. <laughs> and just from the standpoint of kind of the changes that that necessarily means for your operations and um, has it felt like you've kind of had to, I don't know, has it felt like you're relinquishing control in a way, given that you're no longer personally putting hands on all the frames that are getting built or how has that whole aspect of just the change in how the company runs and how the bikes are built felt and what's it been like to make that move? Yeah. I mean, it feels good. I think um, the point I was at with custom bikes is either I was going to shut down or do something different. So I'm feeling, yeah, a whole new energy around the business that I haven't felt in a long time. Um, I think it's so cool to pull the frames. I mean, they come in a box ready to ship. And I still... I still made them. They wouldn't exist in the world without me. And I designed them from the ground up. And I, you know, it's cool to see. I personally designed all the dropouts and I chose the paint colors. And it's pretty amazing to see them all. It feels it feels like more effective design to me to be able to make a product that people who are fans of the brand and have known the brand for a long time can get. Um, so I'm I'm super excited. It's it feels this feels more true to what I wanted to do than building custom bikes ever did. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm super pumped. Well, that's great. And you've, well, you also mentioned having just recently made a pretty big move. Uh, was that sort of something that you felt freed up to do no longer being tied to your old shop space or kind of, how did that all fit in here? Yeah, that's so well. Totally. Yeah. I mean, when your your income depends on being in a shop making bikes all day, it'll tie you down to your place. And um we'll see. Yeah, I'm trying it out down here somewhere with a little bit milder climate where I can ride bikes year round. I'm excited to try it out. The ship the shop. So our whole uh shipping and receiving operation is staying in Bozeman and I'll be kind of in and out of there. Uh, for the time being, when when bikes land, um, and I'll have a prototype shop down here. But yeah, I mean, it's freed me up to do some stuff I wanted to do for a long time, and so that's nice too. What would you say are kind of some of the biggest lessons that you've learned from this whole evolution from being a custom builder to going to the production bikes? And of course, we're sort of in the early days of those getting out into the world at this point, but has it felt like something that you've a transition that you've managed relatively smoothly or have there been stumbling blocks of note or anything that you just feel like has become more clear from 
having gone through that whole process? I think the lesson I'm learning is trusting myself, you know, as a designer and a business person. Um, I kind of mentioned it, but I think the custom stuff for a long time didn't really feel like what I had set out to do, but I sort of got wrapped up in it with that huge wait list. And it wasn't until I got some distance from that, that I was able to reassess and look at the business I wanted to have and the bikes I wanted to make. Um, and so, yeah, and listening to myself, we're making bikes for my friends, which feels so good. And I think it's super nerve wracking, you know, instead of sending one bike out at a time, I'm sending, I mean, I'm ordering 250, 300 bikes at a time. And now there's maybe 400 of these super somethings out there. And the feedback has been so overwhelmingly positive. Like we get a few emails every day of someone being like, this is my favorite bike ever, which is so cool. And I think it's encouraging me to trust myself with the design on these mountain bikes and the touring bikes. And I'm glad that people are responding well to it. Yeah, listening to yourself. I think it's good. That's a good note. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, And this is perhaps a bit of a tangent from where we've been here, but uh, would be curious to have you just tell us a little bit about Dangle Supply, too, while we're on the subject. Floor is yours, I guess. Yeah, so Dangle Supply. uh, I thought maybe you were asking about the titanium welding. Was, uh, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, um, that was a joke. Well, that's a joke I started with a friend when I was learning to weld titanium. And I was just throwing away my little practice pieces. And it was peak bike packing on the internet time. And we saw everyone dangling their titanium cups from their seat packs. And we were like, what would be the dumbest thing to dangle? And we thought that would be a bong. So I made a few bongs and we made a joke Instagram account. And people started asking for them. And next thing we knew, we were selling bongs. It was crazy. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, I just really find that whole story amusing, which is why I really wanted to slip that in there. I don't know if I have another follow-up question particularly, but um, it was just something that, I mean, it makes sense, like s- small round two bits to miter together and get your tie welding dialed in and then uh people actually wanted them i assume you didn't really imagine that that was actually going to go anywhere it was purely a joke initially no it was absolutely a joke yeah and then we did i mean i think we did a pre-order well actually i mean it's it's actually a huge part of how i landed on production bikes because we did i mean if you if you have an email with bikes somewhere in the URL, you get like 10 emails a day from factories being like, hey, can we make, we're a titanium bike factory, can we make your bikes? And so I think at that time, I had welded like the first 30 dangle bongs and it was really exhausting. So I was like, I'm not going to do this again. So I emailed one of those bike factories and I was like, hey, could you make this? And they said, sure. And so we did a pre-order for them. I think we sold out of like, a, we sold a hundred dangle bones in like 20 minutes. And we were like, oh, maybe this is a thing. And yeah, and I mean, now 
we've sold sold over a million dollars of dangle bonds. Wow. It's crazy. It's crazy. That is wild. <laughs> but I learned a ton about um I mean that business is a it's actually a pretty cool business. And I have taken all those lessons and now I'm really applying them to Squar as we, you know, go into more of a a production stuff model. And I learned a lot about working with the factories in Asia through doing that stuff. So who'd have thought? <laughs> yeah, uh it is just interesting the way these things work out sometimes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Well, Adam, this has been a lot of fun and appreciate you coming on. Wishing you all the best with the company going forward and this sort of pivot to production that you've done. And thanks for sharing the story. It's been cool. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. All right. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we would appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts to keep the show going and growing. I'd also like to say thanks to Adam for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.